In difficult times, when you aren't sure what to do, what's your default? In difficult times, when you aren't sure what to do, what's your default? Is your default, for example, to get methodical and to kind of outline all of the options, weigh out all the pros and cons to try to determine the best course of action? Is it to get consultative, you know, post a poll online on social media and try to solicit other people's opinions? Or is your default to get a tub of ice cream and to lie in bed and pound that thing down, hoping that you'll wake up the next day and find out that it was all one bad dream? In difficult times, when you're not sure what to do, what's your default? See, the reason I ask is because we're into this study now this year in the book of James, and we launched into it last week, understanding that this letter written by Jesus' brother was written to people in the first century uh, in very difficult times, in very, very challenging circumstances. Mike helped us understand the context of this letter, that Christians had given everything to follow Jesus, and now were being persecuted and fleeing the city of Jerusalem and finding themselves in many cases with nothing. And they were in all kinds of hardships and challenging circumstances. And yet, James begins this letter by encouraging them that in these trials, they can actually be opportunities to strengthen their faith and build their character. In a lot of ways, that's what the book of James is all about. That's what this letter and this study this year into this letter written by James to his original audience is going to be all about. It's going to be about discovering a faith that thrives, especially during difficult times. Well, James continues on, and we're going to continue moving along in chapter 1. And if you brought a Bible along or uh, have a Bible app on your personal device, I'd encourage you to read along. The passage is real short today, only four verses, so here we go. In verse, chapter, in verse 5 of chapter 1, uh, it says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. You know, in the context of introducing this subject of how to deal with difficult times and the way that they can be a strengthening for your faith, James refers to this dynamic of what he calls lacking Wisdom says in the context of these difficult circumstances, if any of you lacks wisdom and then teaches his hearers what they should do. So understand that's what James is trying to do in this passage today. He's trying to provide his hearers with a default setting or perhaps a new default setting when they don't know what to do in these difficult times, when they lack wisdom. That's the dynamic of these four verses that we're going to study today. And since we've got some time on our hands and we've only got four verses to look at, I figured that we would get into a little bit of the way to actually study this passage rather than just kind of spouting out what it, what it says as a finished product. And I wanted to kind of expose you today to a few Bible study techniques, the kind of tools of the trade that you learn in seminary that help you understand how to study the Bible that you can apply in your personal Bible reading and Bible study at home. And the first thing I want to expose us to is what's called a mechanical outline. Mechanical outline is a way of looking at the passage according to the structure of the sentences to determine what is primary and what is secondary in the 
chain of thought of the original author. And so if you look on the screen, you'll see James 1, 5 to 8, what we just read, organized though, according to its mechanical outline. And I've bolded kind of the primary thoughts. And then underneath in unbolded uh, letters, you'll see the the secondary thoughts that kind of provide supplementary information to the primary thoughts. So, you know, James, you'll see, begins and says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you're in difficult circumstances, you don't know what to do, he says, you should ask God. And then he supplements by making some comments about God and about what, it, what happens when you ask God, that God gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you if you do that. He says, but though, coming back to his main thought, but when you ask God, when you lack wisdom in those difficult times, he says, you must believe and not doubt. And then he provides some secondary commentary on people who doubt. He says, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. And then he further develops that thought by saying that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord because such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I hope this helps you see the passage that we're looking at today from the perspective of James' main thoughts and his secondary thoughts. His basic idea is in difficult times when you don't know what to do, you lack wisdom, seek God, ask God for that wisdom, but ask it in a certain way. And he makes some supplementary comments about the nature of God in whom you should seek and some supplementary comments about a person who doubts when they seek him. That's basically the structure of the passage today. And you'll, so you'll see from the perspective of a main thought, if you combine the first part of James 1, 5 and the first part of verse 6, the bolded parts into one idea. This is James' main idea where he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. That gang is the big idea of what James is trying to teach his original hearers in the context of these difficult circumstances when they don't know what to do. He's saying if you lack wisdom, the default you should adopt is one that turns to God for it, but when you turn to God for it, you need to turn to him in a certain way. That's the big idea of the default he's trying to develop in his hearers when it comes to difficult times where they don't know what to do. Now, I wonder if you're wondering what he means by the phrase, do not doubt, because I think that that phrase kind of leaps off the page for some of us, because I know a lot of us live with doubts in our lives with God and when it comes to faith and spirituality. And so what I want us to do is to pay a little bit more attention to that development of that second part of James' big idea, where he says, you know, turn to God, but believe and don't doubt, because he's got some information there that I think would be relevant to those of us who experience doubt. You know, if that's you today, know that, you know, around here for the last number of years, we've actually affirmed the legitimacy of having some doubt in your faith. You know, for some of us, we think that it's uh, kind of incongruous to follow Jesus and have any sort of doubts that somehow we've got to have it all together and understand everything perfectly. But we've learned in the last number of years, it can be spiritually beneficial to acknowledge doubt. In fact, we've been exposed in the last year or so to a book called The Sin of Certainty. A book that teaches that, you know, maybe it isn't the best thing to think that you've got it all together and you know everything about everything when it comes to the heavens and the universe and God and all that. And, and rather encourages a posture of embracing the mystery of a life of spirituality and a faith in God. So around here, we've actually been encouraging doubts. What then does it mean when James says you're to go to God to ask for wisdom and believe but not doubt? 
Well, let's take a look at that section again where he begins in verse six and says, when you ask God for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt. And he develops this by saying, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. James says three things. First of all, he says the doubting person, he makes a metaphor. He says they're like a wave who goes back and forth and back and forth, oscillating to and fro because of the wind. And he says that that back and forth and back and forth and back and forth approach to God is inconsistent with receiving his wisdom because as he further develops it, he says that person is double-minded and unstable. They're double-minded and unstable. And in that phrase, double-minded, we find our next clue to understanding what James is really getting at here through a Bible study technique called a word analysis. So when you look at specific words and find out what the original word was and what they mean, in this particular case, the original Greek word translated as double-minded was translated well because the word literally is dipsychos. Dipsychos, meaning two-minded or two-souled. It represents a person who's trying to live two lives at once or live in two places at once. And what James is saying is that the reason getting wisdom from God is incompatible in that place is because the person is living in two places at once. They kind of want God's wisdom, but they kind of don't. They're having a have your cake and eat it too kind of duplicitous approach to faith. And he says that that kind of faith is inconsistent, not the kind of faith that includes spiritual doubts that we've encouraged the last number of years. That kind of faith just takes a posture of humility and marvel at the mystery of the spiritual life with God. The kind of doubts that James is specifically referring to that are inconsistent with receiving God's wisdom are doubting whether you even want God's wisdom because you're sort of into it, but you're sort of into something else. And you're back and forth and back and forth like the waves of the sea. And the reason James says, that that approach to seeking God's wisdom is so inconsistent with gaining God's wisdom is because of what he has said earlier as he develops his point about the nature of God himself. Remember at the, f- the, the first half of the main idea, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. And then James develops that idea. Let's take a look at that again in verse five. Because he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Here he's developing the credibility or the character of God to be trustworthy if we turn to him for wisdom. And in the words that he chooses to use, he provides another clue into what he means in the passage today. It's the word generously. And in addition to looking at a passage from a mechanical outline perspective and looking at certain words from a word analysis, not only do we want to analyze this word generously, but another study technique I I would suggest that we employ is to consider what's called commentaries where professional academic scholars comment on various phrases and word choices. Because in a study of this particular passage, and particularly this particular word, scholars would say that it has actually been mistranslated as generously in most of our English translations today. 
Biblically speaking, this particular word uh, kind of played out or was used in two different ways in the Bible. It was used sometimes in, in terms of the word generous and sometimes in terms of the word integrity. It had sort of two different meanings. And when it referred to integrity, it referred to a singleness of thought or intention. Now think about what James is saying here when he's talking about turning to God for wisdom and understand that what makes far more contextual sense is that he's describing God as not finding fault in anybody, but rather than generously with singleness of thought and intention, not wavering because of who we are or what we've done. God is eager to dole out that wisdom to those who ask through that kind of scholarly analysis of considering what the commentaries would say on a word like this, we can understand what James is getting at when he's describing the nature and the single-minded character of God when we turn to him and ask for wisdom. And when you put that together to what he's already said about the kind of doubt that makes receiving his wisdom exempt, I hope you can understand the punch of what James is trying to, to create here. You know, he wants his hearers who are experiencing significant difficulty and don't know what to do in cases where they lack wisdom to turn to God. But he wants them to turn to God in a certain way, in a single-minded way, as opposed to a dipsychos double-minded way where they're back and forth and back and forth and kind of into God's wisdom, but kind of not because of the very nature of God who provides that wisdom in the first place in his single-mindedness, his unwavering nature, no matter who we are or what we've done or where we're at when we ask him for that wisdom. What James is saying is that because God is single-minded in providing wisdom to those who need it, we need to be single-minded towards him when we seek to receive wisdom from him. And putting all of those study strategies together and all of those pieces of the puzzle together, I hope that we can understand what James is trying to say to us today. To his original audience who was suffering and struggling from various degrees of persecution, experiencing massive difficulty and undoubtedly not knowing where to turn or what to do in many cases. James is saying to them, if they lack wisdom in their difficulty and don't know what to do, all they need to do is turn to God and ask. But he's not just getting them to turn to God to ask. He's getting them to turn to God to ask for wisdom in a certain way, with a certain posture. And the default setting he's trying to develop in his original hearers, I believe, is the same default setting he wants to embed in our hearts and minds today. A default setting that turns to God in difficult times when we don't know what to do to seek his wisdom, but to do it with a posture of single-mindedness because of the single-minded way in which he wants to dole it out to us. Guys, in some sense, uh, that should be no surprise, especially if we've been on this faith journey for any amount of time. Because it, when it comes to the word wisdom, it's kind of synonymous with what the word wisdom itself means from a biblical perspective. See, wisdom is not just uh, like intellectual, sophisticated thought. Wisdom is not just insight or enlightenment. 
Wisdom, by definition, is divine guidance for right living. I'll say that again if you're taking notes. Wisdom is divine guidance for right living. Biblical wisdom that comes divinely from God is for a specific purpose, to live out God's design and vision for our lives. And so to seek wisdom presupposes that you are interested in God's perspective and his vision and direction for your life. Right? Wisdom is divine guidance for right living. It's not just about knowing things or being, having a greater capacity to make decisions. Right? And so very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, when he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Understand that there are preconditions to receiving. It's called asking. Sincerely. Right? There's, precon- there's preconditions to, to finding. It's called seeking. Preconditions to the door being opened to you. It's called genuinely knocking. And where Jesus in his most famous sermon promises this, and when James in chapter one reinforces this, what they're saying is that the integrity of God is to fully respond to our requests, but we've got to be sincere and single-minded in those requests in order to receive them. Basically what James is trying to build into our minds and hearts as a default setting is an appreciation That we've got to want to work with the one that we want to work with us. When we don't know what to do in difficult times and our default setting is to turn to God, we've got to want to work with the one we want to work with us. Which should make a lot of sense in the way that our world works, shouldn't it? You know, think about all the ways in which in our world you've got to want to work with the one you want to work with you. You know, a personal trainer is really no benefit. You invest all that time and money and energy if you kind of want to get in shape and kind of want to frequent Dairy Queen. It kind of is, you know, inconsistent with one another. It doesn't work. Think about what doctors must feel like when their patients come and they want to get healthy, but they don't want to quit smoking. Or what dentists feel like when people come and their mouth's a mess, but they don't want to engage in anything near the time zone of good oral hygiene habits. You know, it's a having your cake and eating it too kind of approach to life. And in so many ways, it doesn't work. It's inconsistent. It's, it's what we call an oxymoron. Not those people, that's maybe a different kind of moron. But, you know, it's called an oxymoron. It's an inconsistency where two opposing realities cannot coexist. And the same thing's true when it comes to spiritual lives with God, isn't it? You know, I've seen all kinds of examples over the last two decades of people who... You know, they'll approach financial stewardship counselors in our church. We've got people who will offer this service. But, you know, they'll meet for months. And at the end of the day, they really aren't interested in curbing their spending or getting out of debt. You know, we'll see people who who will solicit all kinds of hours of the time and energy and passion of marriage mentors when really they're not interested in strengthening their marriage. They're just interested in getting married or having a wedding. And it's, it's kind of inconsistent in that sense. Speaking of marriage, there was a time I remember I was providing marriage counseling to someone who it seemed really wanted to to kind of make their marriage work. And in our conversations, they were really interested in how to make it work with their spouse, where unbeknownst to me, at the same time, they were simultaneously having an affair. They were interested in strengthening their marriage and interested in destroying it at the same time. Okay, It, it doesn't work. That's a duplicitous approach to faith. 
most ridiculous example I've ever experienced, at least that I can remember, was a few years ago, uh, I was driving back from uh, an event with some other people uh, from our church, and I wasn't the driver, I was in the back seat. And uh, on this drive home, I'm not sure why, but the driver, before we got in the car, had us kind of huddle up and pray for safety and protection on our, on our trip home. I don't know if you've ever done this. Admittedly, I don't do this very often. By confession, maybe I should do this a lot more. I don't know. But it was kind of a rarity for me. So we huddled up. We prayed for safety and protection on the way home. And then I proceeded to start to have a nap in the back seat. Woke up a couple hours later. It was dark. I noticed the, the vehicles that we were passing were passing at an extraordinary rate. And so I kind of with dozed eyes looked up at the speedometer. And I had to sort of do the double check and realize that the speedometer was reading somewhere around 220 kilometers per hour. 220 kilometers per hour. It's the fastest I've ever driven in a vehicle. Not that I was driving. It's the fastest I've ever been in a vehicle. Ironically, in the same rare time where we huddled up and prayed for God's safety and protection as we traveled. No wonder the driver wanted us to pray for that. But when you think about that, praying for safety and protection and driving 220, like it just, it makes no sense. It's totally inconsistent. It's an oxymoron. It's, a, it's a, 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 a conflict in terms. It's like race walking. Those terms are never intended to be used together, right? It's a contradiction in terms. And the question for us today is especially in those difficult times, especially when we don't know what to do, and especially when we're motivated to turn to God and to give him a chance, what is it that tugs on our heart that makes us stumble in doing that? that makes us two-minded, double-minded, and makes us waffle back and forth and back and forth where we're kind of interested in God's wisdom, but kind of not. You know, what is it in our lives as we think about the challenges that we're facing that makes us both want to seek God and kind of live out our own will? You know, are there relational challenges and conflicts that are really complicated in our lives where we'd love to turn to God, but if we're honest with ourselves, we're turning to God, not so much for him to restore the relationship and do whatever he has to do in us. What we want from God is for him to give us the articulation to make our point so that we can tell that person we're right and tell them, you know, what's what. You know, is our heart to be right or is our heart to restore the relationship, which is what God wants. When we're in a financial mess and we turn to God and give him a chance to give us wisdom for stabilizing our finances, are we also interested in the stewardship principles that he provides and the wisdom that he provides for how to handle the money that he entrusts to us? Are we only interested in the stability or are we also interested in the stewardship? You see how this works? Are we interested in God's design in his right living so that we can seek his guidance? Or are we just interested in him rubber stamping our opinion and perspective and solution? You know, as we think about our lives with God, we can do this all the time. You know, we can be tempted to want to experience, you know, all kinds of intimacy with God, but not be willing to experience any of the engagement to experience that intimacy. You know, we want deep community off of shallow commitment. We want lives of significance without having to be sacrificial. We want to experience a life that is loved well without having to love well. And we're wanting to have our cake and eat it too and live a duplicitous kind of double-minded, wafting back and forth kind of approach to faith. And it doesn't work that way. 
Author Henry Blackaby once said that the very bedrock basis of experiencing God and the wonder of his activity in your life is shifting from looking to God to bless what you're doing and what you want to do and instead looking to God and discovering what he does and what he blesses and trying to do it more. It's a dynamic of surrender and submission and alignment to his will and his agenda, not ours. Understand that God is eager to pour out his wisdom and grace and guidance and power in our lives, especially where we desperately need it in those difficult times. But there is a precondition to that as we turn to him for it. We've got to want to work with the one we want to work with us. And so the question is in our lives today, in the ways in which we're facing difficulty and challenge, you know, what's tugging at our hearts to prevent us from doing that? In what ways do we need to, to reflect on how we want to work with the one that we want to work for us to a greater degree? As we wrap things up, I'm going to invite the band to come up and to lead us in a final song. And as they play this final song kind of with us and over us, uh, we're going to go through a reflection exercise based on the card that you received as you came in today. And this reflection exercise, I hope, can be a support for our entire week. But today, in our reflection as we close this morning, we're just going to focus on the front of the card. Because the front of the card asks the question, God, I need wisdom in and kind of begs us to consider where we need the wisdom of God in our lives. Where it is that we're experiencing difficulty in our lives and we're not sure what to do. For some of us, maybe we're experiencing persecution of a sort in a form of peer pressure. Maybe we need God's wisdom in that. For some of us, maybe we're experiencing hardship in financial terms or a job loss. Maybe some of us are experiencing relational strife or the stresses of a big, important life trajectory altering decision. Maybe we're experiencing trials of a, a medical or a health challenge or crisis. I don't know what it is for you, but as we close the service today, spend some moments kind of inventorying those challenges and persecutions and trials that you're facing today where you don't know what to do and ultimately could use the divine wisdom that God wants to provide. Then for homework, you can flip it over and you'll see on the other side, that's the real, that's the real meat of applying things this week. And considering, first of all, in what ways, in regards to those difficulties, are we tempted to be double-minded? In what ways are we tempted to want to have our cake and eat it too, and both want God's wisdom and at the same time kind of want our own way? And spend some time inventorying and reflecting on those and going to God and asking Him to purify our hearts and thoughts and minds and want what He wants single-mindedly. And then as we do, and as God grows us in that ability to approach him single-mindedly, let's seek out his wisdom, which in practical terms means three things. You can write this down if you're taking notes as well. It means prayer and reflective listening to literally ask God and have a conversation with him where you're quiet and listening to what he may, in some cases audibly, but in some senses sensibly, just, just kind of uh, nudge and create and stir in you. Uh, number two, through reflecting on relevant passages in scripture where God has already provided his wisdom to speak to a matter. Uh, and then number three, by considering wise counsel. You know, people who are tracking with God closely, whom by his spirit God can speak on, you know, through them, they can speak on God's behalf into our lives. As we this week consider the ways in which we're tempted to be double-minded, 
and try in increasing ways with God's help to be single-minded as we kind of solicit those three aspects of godly wisdom. What is it that we're then hearing collectively from God through those three steps? Or those three ways. What is it that we're hearing from God? And kind of fill that out and reflect on that and, and journal on that this week. Again, the good news, as Jesus' brother James understands it, is that a life of following Jesus has way less to do with what we do for God. And, what, and way more to do with what God wants to do for us. In us, to us, through us, and ultimately for us because of his risen son, Jesus, and his living spirit today. Know that no matter what you're going through, no matter who you are or what you've done, God is eager to pour out his divine guidance on you. But wisdom by definition is divine guidance for right living. And you have to want it in order to receive it. Let's remember this week when we consider the difficulties where we don't know what to do and think it might be wise to turn to God, that we've got to want to work with the one that we want to work with us. And as we turn to God single-mindedly, let's enjoy his power and might as he single-mindedly pours his wisdom and guidance out on us. Let's pray together. Oh God, we want to thank you for the way you want to work in our lives, especially in these difficult times and trials and challenges that we face, especially when we don't know what to do. Thank you for the availability of your divine wisdom and guidance. Thank you for your single-mindedness, your unwavering nature that wants to pour it out on every single one of us, no matter who we are or what we've done. I pray that we would hear your voice through your word, through James today, that you would touch our hearts and motivate us to desire to be single-minded towards you as well, to want to work with you as we want you to work with us and help us to come to you for wisdom, not just desiring your insight, but desiring to live that out in our lives. Give us your strength and courage to be those single-minded followers of you and help us to be quick to give you the credit when we do. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.